When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Matthias Klassen. Dr. Matthias Klassen is an associate professor of English at Aarhus University in Denmark. His research integrates Harris study with the natural and social sciences, in particular, human behavioral biology and evolutionary and cognitive psychology. Today, he'll be talking to us about a wonderful book he wrote called Why Horror Seduces, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Matthias, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, I should perhaps say welcome back. You've been here before. Uh, Just very briefly, it would be great if you could introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about your field of expertise, especially evolutionary psychology, which is a a new field in, in, in literary studies as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm an associate professor in uh, literature and media at Aarhus University in Denmark. I work in an English department, um, and I'm also the director of uh, something called the Recreational Fear Lab, which is a research center at the same institution. And um, the Recreational Fear Lab is a place where we try to basically um, investigate when people enjoy playing with fear. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's related to the work I did in the book, Why Horror Seduces, because that book is an attempt to understand why people are attracted to horror movies and scary books and so on. Um, and I found it useful in my academic work to adopt an evolutionary perspective because I think it has uh, incredible explanatory power. It really... You know, Darwin's old idea of natural selection and the way in which organisms change over time in response to environmental changes, um, it explains everything around us in, in the in the biosphere, including humans and, and 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 human behavior, which would include culture. So even though even though there might be sort of a long and sometimes difficult to spot causal chain between, you know, mid 19th century Darwinian evolutionary theory on the one hand and uh, literature on the other hand, I do believe that that chain is there and that it makes sense to to try to kind of um, trace it. Um, I, I myself did my PhD on Gothic novels of the 18th and 19th century England. When I had to do the background, uh, that's a review, uh, literature review on the Gothic, I, I was completely... I, she was just sick and tired of all those psychoanalytic approaches. And I was looking at it from an equicritical perspective. There was almost nothing when I started. And there was a wealth of background uh, research on Gothic novels from a, psych- a psychoanalytical perspective or psychological perspective. And mm. you have also mentioned in your book, you start the book, you, you talk about horror genre and you talk about some of the shortcomings of literature uh, or approaches, critical approaches to Gothic and horror in general. Um, yeah. But what are those shortcomings of historical approaches? Yeah, so I included that chapter in the book, which is sort of a review of 
um, the most kind of common critical ways to to approach gothic and, and horror. And as you say, uh, they include psychoanalytical ones and historicist ones. And um, the historicist approaches um, tend to focus solely on the cultural context of of the work in question. Um, and there is something to that. I mean, an author is always a product of their context. You know, they're always shaped by the norms and values and the beliefs of their cultural context. And, 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 and that goes into the books as well. Um, but that's not all there is. I mean, humans aren't just cultural constructs. We're also biological creatures. Um, there is a term that I like, which is biocultural, which I think describes humans as, you know, biocultural creatures. We come into the world with, uh, genetic predispositions, uh, including predispositions to learn and to adopt the norms and the values of our context. Um, so there is biology there and there is also a culture and those two factors, um, interact. And so I think if you were to approach, um, horror literature or Gothic literature purely from a kind of contextual or historicist perspective, you're missing out on, on, on half of the picture, which is the biological one. And, and uh, you, you sort of touched upon one of the questions that I wanted to ask bioculture approach. Mm -hmm. What is that bioculture approach? If you want to give us a definition for the, for the layman, for the uninitiated. Right. Yeah. So, so for anybody who's interested in, 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 in this whole field of evolution and literature or literary Darwinism, uh, they'll probably be at first confused by, by the many terms that are used to basically describe the same thing. Um, so biocultural is really synonymous with evolutionary. It's just a term that explicitly gets into focus the kind of dual nature of our species of humans as biological and cultural creatures. Um, so biocultural means an approach that both focuses on biological foundations, you know, what is what are some of the psychological mechanisms that we're born with? For example, a fear mechanism that seems to be, you know, standard issue in, in, in human psychophysiological wiring around the globe. Um, but also how are we shaped by culture? How does our particular culture shapes how we, how does it shape how we behave, things we believe and so on. So for example, some people might be afraid of ghosts if they grow up in a culture where belief in ghosts is pervasive. So being afraid of ghosts is the result of an interaction between biology and culture, um, an evolved innate fear system and a cultural belief in that particular kind of threat. And um, so that's something that I hadn't really been aware of before. So I mainly looked at things from a culture perspective. And I guess to 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 approach things from a biological biocultural perspective, you do need a lot of background in in evolution psychology, and this yeah. is what I'm hoping to be able to you know uh, familiarize myself more through this interview. You yeah. horror horror genre is has been kind of 
uh, research to death in a way, but you brought a very new approach, which is this biocultural approach or evolutionary psychology, and you kind of make the case that it lends itself perfectly because horror fiction exploits our deep-seated psychological mechanisms and evolved mm. fear system. Could you talk about these concepts? What do you mean by our evolved fear system and how does horror, horror uh, exploit um, that deep-seated psychological mechanism we have? Right, yeah. It's a horror, horror as a genre is, I think everybody can agree that it's effectively defined. You know, it's defined according to the intended audience response. You want a horror novel to be scary. You want a horror movie to frighten the audience. I mean, it's it's a, kind of a steal of quality. Um, I remember reading an interview with uh, Stephen King, who is my favorite author, and he said that if you learned that somebody died from fear from reading one of his books, he would go out in public and say, oh, gee, I'm sorry to hear that. But he would also secretly be really pleased. You know, that that really worked. Um, so, so it really is about eliciting what psychologists call negative emotions or is about awakening fear and dread and terror and anxiety and disgust and those kinds of emotions in the audience. It's also about, you know, uh, positive emotions. It's also about pleasure and enjoyment and so on. Uh, but the thing about those negative emotions is that they're, um, they are evolved uh, responses. They're part of the whole uh, defensive system that was developed um, over you know, millions of years to protect organisms from danger. So fear is is a mechanism that evolved to keep us alive in a dangerous world. Um, it's not a uniquely human phenomenon. Uh, presumably other uh, uh, species also feel fear or they at least um, exhibit behavior that is consistent with a fear response. Um, so fear evolved as a defensive system, something that keeps us alive in a dangerous world, and horror exploits that system. And and um, and earlier you mentioned that to to be familiar with this approach, there are a lot of terms that might be confusing to a mm -hmm. person who's not familiar. One of the terms you use, and one thing I must say that I really love the book in because you do deal with a lot of difficult concepts, but you beautifully and very accessibly uh, explain them, and then you have examples as well. One of the terms used is non-random distribution of human fears. What do you mean by that? And how is this non-random distribution of human fears reflected in horror films or horror right, fiction? Yeah. Right. Um, and thanks for the thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, um, so, so what are we afraid of? I mean, if you if you go out on the street and ask random people, what are you afraid of? They'll probably, you know, they'll respond in fairly predictable ways. They'll be afraid of disease or death or terrorism or climate collapse. Um, they might also be afraid of spiders and snakes and being in confined places. They might be afraid of, you know, very deep water. They might be afraid of heights. And, uh, and so if you were to prod them even more and ask if they have a phobia, you know, a lot of people have suffer from phobia. Um, phobic objects also tend to be pretty predictable. Uh, 
So what I just said before, you know, with the snakes and spiders and heights and for some people, certain social situations, um, all of that seems maybe on the face of it, uh, kind of irrational. I mean, why should you be afraid of snakes if you live somewhere in the world that doesn't have, um, venomous snakes? So for example, in Denmark, where I live, uh, spider phobia is the most common one. Uh, and yet we don't have a single deadly spider and nobody dies from spider bites in, in in this part of the world. So it seemed kind of irrational, but it really isn't uh, because the most common fears may not match, you know, what we find in mortality statistics in in um, calculations of what kills people in the modern world, but they match very nicely the kinds of things that were dangerous for our evolutionary ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago when the dark was associated with real danger because that's when the you know the true monsters came out when the sun set you know you should be vigilant um spiders were dangerous to you snakes were a real danger um and and so that's what i mean by a non-random distribution of fears the kinds of things we are afraid of aren't just arbitrary and they aren't solely dictated by culture um they tend to be things that have posed a real threat to our ancestors for thousands or even millions of years. Um, so, so for example, um, there is an ancient kind of arms race between uh, reptiles and mammals that goes back to the age of the dinosaurs. Um, and so, so that's probably why even today we tend to, you know, when people depict evil, we tend to equip the depictions of evil with reptilian traits. Um, I sometimes think of, you know, the old film uh, Gremlins, about these cute little mogwai, furry mammalian creatures that turn evil if you feed them after midnight. Uh, and when they turn evil, they uh, significantly become reptilian with kind of slimy scales and reptile eyes and so on. So the mammals are are good and the reptiles are evil. And that's really a reflection of a million year old, 65 million year old arms race between our ancestors and and our natural enemies. So so the things we fear are not random. They are uh, reflections of ancestral danger. And um, if we look at, at the landscape of, of horror stories, many of uh, uh, the monsters that kind of stalk our horror stories are exaggerated reflections of the kinds of things that were dangerous to our ancestors. So horror is full of enormous serpents and uh, giant spiders and uh, huge monsters with uh, sharp teeth and claws and hostile, you know, males wielding sharp weapons, um, infectious creatures like zombies that are contagious and and, uh, and really gross. So that's that's the kind of thing I had in mind. Uh, just, I guess, quite by accident, a few days ago, I came across this digitized book. Of, uh, I'm originally from Iran. It's called The Book of Demons, which was written about 100 years ago. And there's mm -hmm. this demon who apparently licks your foot. Uh, it's very mm -hmm. pictorial. It licks your foot if your feet at, at night. If your feet, if you stick out your foot, feet out of uh, outside the blank, out of the blanket. I like when I was a kid, I always had that fear of my foot, you know, sticking out of the blanket. But anyway, that demon has a tail, which is a snake. Mm -hmm. It's it's what you say quite rings for, rings familiar with with me, and I guess a lot of people as well. They normally associate I, so, with 
spider. Yeah, so. Reptiles. Yeah. Are. And what you say about the feet sticking out, that seems to be sort of universal. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. And I, I remember also reading uh, another interview with um, Stephen King where he said the same thing. He said, you know, you don't want your feet to be sticking out because then the monster will get them. And, and the interviewer asked him, so why are you okay? Why are you okay with your head sticking out? You know, why, why not the feet? Um, but the head is okay. And King said, well, the monster wouldn't start with the dessert, would it? <laughs> uh, and that kind of, you know, that made good sense to me. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how, well, you did, despite the fire, I, I, when I was a teenager, I used to watch, watch a lot of horrors, not anymore, but if mm. I guess something goes viral in a movie, everybody talks about, I might just browse through the movie or fast forward to see what it's about. But anyway, oh. but, and uh, I'm a big fan of classic cinema, but when I'm not really in the mood and I just want to, you know, spend time and, you know, go on binge watching something and just go to Netflix and start watching some of those, you know, cheap horror American films, which are really gory and bloody. And after 20 minutes, I just switch to something else. But mm. what is this fascination and attraction to horror, despite the fact that, again, psychologically speaking, there have been a lot of documented, uh, uh, the documented negative effects on us. Mm. We know it's harmful, but we're still attracted to that. Yeah. So, so the attraction seems paradoxical because why would you, why would you, you know, spend your valuable time and money being frightened by make-believe? Um, it's not really a paradox because of course people do it because it gives them pleasure. The question then becomes, why would you derive pleasure from being frightened by make-believe? Um, and, and that really brings us into the territory of what I called recreational fear before. Um, so recreational fear is when people play with fear and when they derive pleasure from being frightened. And it's a very widespread phenomenon. It really begins very early in inf infancy when when babies uh, find it uh, amusing to be jump scared. You know, when we do peekaboo or chase play or hide and seek or we throw babies into the air and catch them again. That's an early uh, form of recreational fear when the baby or the infant, um, you know, gets pleasure out of the thrill of, of apprehension of, um, you know, this, the physiological arousal and the, when they get a little older, you know, pre engaging in pretend play with a kind of threat element. If parent or the caretaker pretends to be a monster and chasing them around the, the apartment and they, they know it's not dangerous, but they also kind of immerse themselves into the stimulation, this threat scenario. And then when kids get older, it, their interest in playing with fear tends to be more directed toward media, so horror movies and, and television shows and so on. And um, I think, and our research suggests that uh, that the... Uh, interest in playing with fear and seeking out frightening forms of imaginative uh, play may be adaptive. So it may be that evolution designed, and that's in, in quotation marks because there is no designer here, it's a, it's a blind natural process, but that evolutionary forces have shaped human beings to derive pleasure from playful engagement with fear because it is a learning mechanism. It is a way in which we learn about the dangers of the world. We learn about our own 
um, responses to to threat. We we learn what it feels like to be uh, stressed. We know about we learn about our our limits, and we may get a chance to challenge those limits. So so the short answer would be that I think that our appetite for horror and other kinds of recreational fear is an adaptive mechanism. It is really. It's just like, you know, why do we derive pleasure from having sex? Well, it makes evolutionary sense. Uh, it's a, that's a kind of behavior that um, pays off genetically. Just like deriving pleasure from eating, um, it, it's good for us. And I think in the same way, playing with fear can be good for us. It's, it's an important way in which we learn about ourselves and the world in its more kind of dark aspects. Um, another part of your book that I really loved and was enlightening to me was uh, this overview of American horror. Like I said, I did my PhD on uh, Gothic, but I'm focused on British Gothic. And when it comes to American Gothic, I literally know nothing. So, uh, and I know it's a big part of the book. And if it would be great if we could quickly take us through that development of horror from mid 1800s to postmodern horrors of 1990s. And one thing I'm particularly interested in is to know if this development of horror was a response to sociopolitical circumstances in the United States. We know, for example, there was a time when they had, I remember there were a lot of movies in 1960s where big ants or spiders would walk out of the farm. And, mm -hmm. some, and, and, and it was sometimes maybe a response to the horrors of pesticides that Americans became more aware of. So was it the response to sociopolitical elements or uh, was it underpinned by human biology or maybe both? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think both to, to answer that first question, uh, the second question. And the first question or prompt was to kind of chart the development of American horror. Um, and one thing that struck me as interesting when I did the research for, for that particular chapter um, was, you know, how early in in, in the American quest for cultural independence um, the elements of horror kind of arrive on the stage. Of course, in the uh, 19th century, um, American uh, intellectuals were preoccupied with finding their own kind of cultural identity or uh, cultural independence. Um, finding their own literary voice. Um, and so we have some of the most famous um, authors include people like Edgar Allan Poe and Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne, all of whom wrote some really gruesome stuff, all of whom engaged with, you know, elements of Gothic and, and horror literature. And um, so so it's, it's, it's part of American literary DNA from from the beginning, the the monsters and the witches and the ghosts and, and the hauntings. Um, and then, of course, the arrival of uh, moving pictures um, really changes things. I think it's safe to say that today uh, movies are the dominant medium of, of horror. I mean, horror literature is still alive and well, and we also have horror video games and virtual reality experiences and haunted attractions, which are kind of live action, immersive theater. Um, so, so if we look back over the last 250 years or so, what we see is really a proliferation of horror, uh, a diversification, uh, in terms of media and subgenres and different voices. 
So the landscape of horror today is more diverse and richer than it has ever been before. Um, but it begins with stories. It doesn't begin with literature. I mean, if we wanted to identify the beginnings, we'd have to go much further back, maybe 50,000 years back into the distant past when our ancestors gradually evolved the ability to construct imaginary worlds and, and share those worlds with each other through the medium of language. And so 50,000 years ago or 30,000 or however long ago it was that our ancestors developed uh, speech, um, language, probably they pretty quickly started amusing each other with scary stories about, you know, gruesome monsters. Later on, that uh, evolved into um, horror literature and then arrived with technological developments, movies and then video games and so on. And uh, and it's true what you say that um, horror has, has changed in response to cultural context. So after the Second World War and the nuclear bomb and fears over radiation, we see these horror sci-fi hybrids about enormous ants or, or, you know, Godzilla as a Japanese response to this fear of radioactivity. Um, so it's always, it's always possible and usually gratifying to see how horror emerges in response to sociocultural context. Uh, but it's always also, you know, important to, to, uh, to retain that focus on biological underpinnings. Um, so why would we even be afraid of giant reptiles or huge insects in the first place? Well, we'd have to look at, you know, the fear system that we talked about before and, and common human fears. Um, so, uh, so it is gratifying to see how, for example, slasher movies were all the rage in the 1980s. I mean, that's the decade of the slasher movie, which is a particular subgenre for a cinema uh, that is about usually uh, masked males who hunt and kill teenagers in suburban environments. You know, movies like Friday the 13th franchise or Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street, those kinds of movies were incredibly popular in the in the 80s. Um, but for various reasons, one of them might be that uh, it was a it was a time when um, sexual norms were under discussion, and in many of those movies, it's the sexually active teenagers who are killed first. But uh, it, it was a time when there was focus on um, stranger danger and discussions about to what degree it was safe in these, you know, the otherwise um, very attractive American um, suburban environments that are usually where the stock killer uh, hunts his prey. And so, 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 so that's all, that's all fine, you know, looking at cultural context and seeing how that's, how that shapes or um, influences for movies, but there are other mechanisms at play here, including psychological mechanisms, and also as a kind of habituation. I think uh, where you know, once people have seen enough slasher movies that follow the same kind of basic plotline, they get tired of it. They want something new, and so when the slasher wave sort of died down in the mid nineteen eighties, um, it's not because 
the cultural context suddenly changed overnight it's because people you know they'd had enough and then then as a result of that habituation um filmmakers begin sort of rearranging the elements of of the subgenre that's that's why we see the resurgence of um slasher movies but in a more kind of postmodern ironic genre savvy form with well you could argue that nightmare on elm street uh, has some of those elements but certainly with the arrival of scream in the mid-1990s uh, a slasher movie that is very aware that it is a slasher movie and that plays to an audience that is familiar with the conventions of this particular subgenre. Um, I think that's partly a result of saturation of the market and uh, habituation. You know, people have seen the traditional slasher movie dozens of times, and so you have to shake it up a little bit. So if you really if one wanted to understand why horror movies change over time, um, you'd have to take into account um, deep-seated psychological mechanisms, uh, sociocultural context, and maybe also mechanisms such as habituation and the desire for novelty. Uh, uh, again, I do like to emphasize uh, how accessible the book is. So the book, one section of the book deals with the theoretical uh, concepts, and you also provide a history of American Gothic, and then you go to use those concepts, apply those concepts to some well-known movies. So uh, I'd like to discuss two movies here. I'm sure a lot of listeners are also familiar with those two. One of them is uh, Rosemary's Baby. Mm. So uh, how, how does this uh, movie trigger our evolved fears of betrayal and contamination? Yeah. Yeah, so, so the movie, of course, is uh, an adaptation of the novel by Ira Levin. It's a very faithful adaptation and stays very close to, to, to the book. And the book became a huge sensation when it was, when it was published. Uh, it was something people talked about. You know, when people met for lunch or went out, um, they would talk about this new book. And, and then when the movie came out, they would talk about that. It really resonated with people. And so the basic plot is the story is about this young couple, uh, Rosemary and Guy. Rosemary is uh, a young woman who um, dreams of having her own family. Um, her husband, Guy, is a, an aspiring actor who is very ambitious and not very successful. And um, he has some success, you know, doing, doing commercials. And so they have some money and they get offered an apartment in a very attractive apartment house in Manhattan, um, the Brantford. And so they move in and Rosemary is very excited. It's a huge old apartment. Um, and she begins decorating and imagining where the baby uh, should have its room. The problem is her husband doesn't want babies. He wants to focus on his career. Uh, and then they're befriended by this sort of little bit pushy elderly couple in the next apartment. Um, long story short, uh, Guy suddenly gets a lot of acting success and agrees to have a baby and uh, Rosemary does some rape. She becomes pregnant. Um, turns out that the pregnancy is incredibly painful and that in fact, the elderly couple next door are Satanists who are trying to help the Antichrist arrive on earth. And they use Rosemary as the vessel 
and they've struck a deal with her husband Guy to use witchcraft to give him uh, acting success in exchange for borrowing his wife as a vessel for the Antichrist. It's really, it's really kind of far out. But, 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 but then finally, Rosemary gives birth to this little, uh, this little baby boy with horns and uh, yellow eyes and a tail. And then she wants to kill that satanic spawn, but you know her motherly instincts sort of prompt her to protect him. But but the book is told uh, in such a way that we always see things from Rosemary's perspective, and for very long stretches of, and that that goes for the movie as well. For very long stretches of the story, we don't know who to trust, and we don't know whether the neighbors are you know just confused old people or. You know, practicing Satanists. We don't know if her husband Guy has ill intentions, or the kind of creepy old doctor she goes to see when the the pregnancy becomes painful, and and so that that very uncomfortable um, position of empathizing with Rosemary, who doesn't know if she's in danger or she's being paranoid, that really taps into a a, a very kind of basic human predicament, which is uncertainty. And the fact that we can never know exactly what is going on inside other people's minds. We can guess and we can try to infer the contents of other people's minds from what they say and from their behavior and their facial expressions and so on. But at the end of the day, we're kind of stuck in our own skulls. And um, and we're stuck with a basic problem of signal detection, of, of, of having to live in, in some uncertainty about whether a cue in the world means danger or isn't really significant. You know, if I'm in my basement alone late at night and I hear a grating noise, does that mean that there is a monster or a chainsaw psychopath in the basement with me, or is it just an old bookcase settling? Um, I don't know. I could investigate, but I could also, you know, live in uncertainty. So I think that's something that that book and the movie really exploits this fear of the unknown uh, and the fear that other people have uh, ill intent. Uh, and I think that's that's a reason part of why it became such a huge success because it because it so powerfully evokes that that predicament. And and uh, there is another movie, another famous movie, Steven Spielberg's Jaws that recreates that primal scenario of predation by monster. Uh, it would be great yeah. if we could talk about that a little as well. Right. Yeah, so Jaws is interesting because it's kind of become a cultural touchstone. I mean, even people who have never seen the movie will be familiar with that, The you know, the two-tone, the that kind of signals the approach of the shark. And... It's the first, um, so it's from the mid-1970s. It's the first uh, summer blockbuster that was released uh, in the summer. And there's an interesting, it's interesting to see how the, the, the release of that movie coincides with a drastic drop in beach tourism in North America. So people run from the beaches into the movie theater to see this movie that everybody is talking about, and they don't get to go back to the beach. People stop bathing, you know, in the ocean, even in swimming pools, because the movie terrifies the audience, because it so successfully depicts this fear of big to the predators. And so 
So, uh, so Jaws is about a, a huge white shark that um, preys on uh, people off the coast of a, of an island in in New England. And Spielberg really made a masterpiece of suspense and horror uh, because the shark is kept off screen for for the vast majority of the film. We don't see the shark at all until like an hour into the movie. Its presence is always kind of there in the periphery, and it kind of builds in the imagination of the audience until until we see it. Um, and it really, you know, it really effectively triggers those evolved fear responses that we talked about before. Um, because, I mean, why why would we even find the concept of a big man-eating shark frightening? This, that is irrational. I mean, globally, more people are killed by falling coconuts than they are by sharks. Cows are vastly more dangerous to people than sharks. But, but cows and coconuts don't have the kinds of features that trigger our deep-seated, evolved fear system. They don't match the kinds of things that were real dangerous to our ancestors. A shark does, you know, with the dead black eyes and the mouth that is, you know, full of sharp teeth and its intent to kill people. Um, and so that's the kind of very primal fear that that Spielberg very effectively evoked in that movie. Um, so, um, so I think that's that it's it, it's one of the best. I mean, people debate whether it's even a horror movie or an adventure movie or or some kind of hybrid. I don't really find those discussions very interesting, but I do think that the the horror elements are are very effective. I think I watched that movie again about like eight and nine months ago. I've seen it like six or seven times, but it's mm. a good suspense film, as you mentioned. <laughs> it is. It yeah. still it still kind of glues you onto the screen when you start watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious to know if we can this framework that you set up for us about uh, to describe our fascination with horror triggering our deep psychological fears. Can we use this framework to talk about our fascination with maybe some some people's fascination, of course, with extreme sports which are dangerous, also big with mm. some sort of toys, you know, in the amusement parks. Um, yeah. I don't know what they are called, like. Uh, they they throw you like hundreds of meters. It's safe, yeah. but it still gives you that fear, that element yeah. of fear. Can we use that um, frame theoretical framework to to describe our fascination with such kinds of uh, staged fears? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's the same basic um, idea. I mean, it's all about threat simulation. Um, that's that's a term or a concept I have borrowed from um, research on nightmares, uh, threat simulation theory. I think horror works the same way and other kinds of recreational fear activities, including roller coasters and theme parks and extreme sports and the, the childhood uh, games that we talked about before. It's all about pretending uh, to be in a dangerous situation or or kind of cheating the body into responding to, um, to cues of danger. I mean, there is kind of a wrinkle in that certain kinds of extreme sports are in, in fact dangerous. Um, but I think it's it's really about uh, the amount of arousal. So so we did some research, my colleagues and I, on, on the relationship between fear and enjoyment. And we found there is a kind of sweet spot of fear. Um, so people, when they seek out 
horror movies and scary books and they go to theme parks and so on, amusement parks. Now, they're looking for just the right amount of stimulation, just the right amount of fear and anxiety and so on. Um, too much and they get overwhelmed, it's not pleasant for them. If it's not scary enough, it's boring for them. So they want just that right amount. And, and there is some individual variation in that sweet spot of fear. So for some, some people, they require a lot of stimulation before they reach the sweet spot and maximize their enjoyment. So for example, I need some pretty scary stuff to really, you know, get my juices going and, and feel that, okay, this is, this is the kind of stimulation I'm going for because I've seen a lot of horror movies and read a lot of horror books and so on. Um, and maybe some people require, you know, even more stimulation for that make-believe isn't enough for them to to get that rush that they desire and so they 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 look to extreme sports where there is an actual element of danger oh it's not something we know a lot about yet but it's something i'm hoping to investigate more in the future with my colleagues in the recreational fear lab um uh, before uh, we come to the conclusion of this interview um i'd like to ask a question about the theoretical approach uh which is bioculture approach or evolutionary psychology it does give us a lot of great insights and it's based on science, which is not easily, which cannot be easily dismissed. But to look at something from, from horror, for example, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, is it to completely dismiss the, let's say, cultural studies or cultural standing of such phenomenon or the role of culture and, and society? Uh, mm. Because there are some hardcore evolutionary psychologists who simply believe in what the science tells them and they completely disregard um, sociological studies, let's say. Yeah. Uh, so what is your response to criticism against uh, evolutionary psychology? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question and a very important point to get into focus because I actually agree with some of those criticisms that a lot of evolutionary psychology tends toward being kind of reductive. Um, there is value in, in, in causal reduction, um, but when you reduce a phenomenon to its constituent parts, you also run the risk of losing some, you know, some of the complexity or some of the aspects that, that, that make that phenomenon interesting. So, so if you were to reduce all of, you know, horror literature to uh, imaginative depictions of threat scenarios. Sure, I think that that's part of the picture, but that's certainly not all of it. Um, so I myself, I've mentioned Stephen King already several times today. King is a unique personality and a unique way of writing, and he's writing in response to the 1970s and 80s and 90s and, and so on, and, and his books change over time, and I'm really interested in that kind of particularity of his works, um, and if I were to reduce his works to, to threat simulations, I'd lose a lot of richness. Uh, so I think for a biocultural approach to literature or movies to have value to, you know, beyond explaining some very diff some very basic patterns, we have to, we have to retain focus on uh, culture, cultural context, and individual authors and aesthetic qualities and so on. So we really, we can't leave the study of, of literature and movies to the psychologists. We also can't leave it to the traditional humanists who tend to, to focus 
only on cultural context. We really need this kind of integrative, interdisciplinary perspective, I would say. And 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 uh, reduction of any kind is always risky business, whether you reduce to evolve psychological mechanisms or to cultural context, um, you're miss, missing out on, on, on the whole picture. Professor Matthias Klassen, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts on New Books Network about your book, uh, Why Hard Seduces, published by Oxford, New York, uh, Oxford University Press. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.